Before we get underway, I just want to give a couple of exciting How Haunted updates. Firstly, I've made some changes to the Patreon, as there are now three tiers. The existing £3 tier won't change, which currently offers early, ad-free standard episodes every week, and at least one very special episode every single month, which is usually an investigation with actual audio from the night. As well as this, there's now a £1 option for anybody who simply wants to support the podcast and receive a personalised thank you from me. Then there's also the £15 a month Extremely Haunted tier. This is available to anybody who wants to get their hands on some exclusive How Haunted merch and an invite to join me via the wonders of live streaming on a paranormal investigation and you'll be able to see what I see, hear what I hear and talk to me live while together we hunt for things that go bump in the night. What's more, anybody who signs up to the £3 tier or the £15 tier will get access to all four parts of the Ghost Trail of County Durham right now. So you can, if you so choose, listen to all four parts back to back right now rather than get access to them weekly across the month of May. If you want to know more, head on over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod or check out the link in this podcast episode description. Secondly, there's a brand new competition starting this week with two prizes. Two copies of my books will be up for grabs. Illustrated Tales of Northumberland, which came out in February, and Paranormal Northumberland, which is released this month. How you can enter is easy. I, alongside my brother and two good friends, are going to attempt to walk 28 miles in July across Northumberland, from Annick to Bambra Castle. This is to raise money for Cancer Research UK. We're doing this in the memory of our friend John, who lost his battle in 2017. He was aged only 34. So if you'd like to support us, and be entered into a draw to win a signed copy of my book, and I'll ship it to anywhere in the world, please head on over to justgiven.com forward slash page, that's P-A-G-E, forward slash walk for john 2023 that's walk the number four john 2023 the link is in this podcast episode description and sponsor us whatever you can afford then simply drop me an email at rob at how and i'll put your name in the hat i'll do the draw at the end of july whoever's picked out first can choose which book they want and whoever comes out second will get the other I'll happily sign them with whatever you want. I thank you from the bottom of my heart if you're in a position to do this and you take the time to help. And now, it's time to get this very special show underway. Enjoy. This time out, we're going to take the first steps on a very exciting journey, which will see us not just look at one location, we're going to turn our attention to an entire county. A county which has been occupied for around 4,000 years and has a rich, yet bloody history. And then there are the spooks, spectres and phantoms that are said to be found at every turn across this ancient land. Tonight, join me for a very special episode as we begin our ghost trail of County Durham.
Welcome to episode 35 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location, and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week, we begin our month-long adventure and ask the question, just how haunted is County Durham? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. There is archaeological evidence of settlements within the area of County Durham dating back to 2000 BC. However, the present city of Durham and the county that has grown around it dates from AD 995, when monks from Lindisfarne settled on what was then known as Dunholm, as the final resting place of the remains of St Cuthbert. 120 years earlier, in 875, Danish fleets were relentlessly invading England, and the holy island of Lindisfarne on the coast of Northumbria was at risk of being completely destroyed. The monks decided that they had no choice but to leave Lindisfarne. They gathered up their most sacred relics, the Lindisfarne Gospels, the remains of King Oswald and St Aidan, and the coffin of St Cuthbert, and they set out on a journey which would take them to Chesterley Street and then eventually lead them to Durham. During the medieval period, the city found spiritual prominence and became the most important religious site in all of England due to the remains of St Cuthbert being situated behind the high altar at Durham Cathedral. It was claimed that the miracle healing powers of St Cuthbert in life had extended to death, as visitors to a shrine were said to have been cured of all manner of diseases. In the present day, the city of Durham is a wonderfully historic location with 569 listed buildings within the city centre. It is famed for the magnificent castle and cathedral, which both date back around a thousand years and are jointly designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site. However, during World War II, the city became a target for German bombers, and we may have lost many of these landmarks had it not been for the timely intervention of St Cuthbert, in the form of one of his miracles. In the early hours of the 1st of May 1942, the city of Durham was awoken by an air raid siren and the sound of Junkers and Dornier bombers in the distance near in Durham. The previous week had seen bombs drop on Exeter, Bath, Norwich and York, and it had been feared that Durham would be next. That night sky was very clear and a full moon illuminated the cathedral, making it a very easy target for the enemy. But as the ominous drone of the bombers grew louder and they neared their target, a dense white mist suddenly began to rise 
and completely engulfed most of the city centre, including the castle and the cathedral, hiding them from view. The aircraft circled for almost an hour until they gave up and headed east towards the coast, leaving the city of Durham unscathed. Witnesses have said that the mist appeared so suddenly and so timely that they thought it must have been a deliberate smokescreen. One woman was quoted as saying, truly, I saw the hand of God. The all clear sounded at 4.02am and with that the mist dispersed completely, leaving the city of Durham bathed in brilliant moonlight. It appeared that this wasn't the first time that the spirit of St Cuthbert had intervened in an attempt to assist Durham at times of war. The monk Simeon of Durham wrote over nine centuries ago of St Cuthbert bringing forth a similar mist shrouding the city when Durham came under the threat of William the Conqueror. This is just one of the astounding stories that has touched the city and county of Durham. Over the centuries the people of County Durham have borne witness to some incredible and on other occasions horrific occurrences. Over the next four episodes you will hear many of these happenings including torture, plague and cold-blooded murder and how they all contributed to County Durham being amongst the most haunted counties in the UK. So sit back, dim the lights and allow me to be your guide on a terrifying spectral journey as we begin our journey across ghostly County Durham. A journey which will see us look at over 30 of the scariest places to be found in the county over the next four episodes of How Haunted. We will start in the northeast of the county and make our way south. Be warned, the first location on our ghost trail contains a particularly nasty story about an attack on a young female. It is almost certainly just a particularly violent legend from the area, but if it's going to make you uncomfortable or cause you any distress, please don't listen on. Beamish Hall Country House Hotel In 1268, Philip de la Lee gave Sir Bertram Montboucher and his daughter the manor at Tanfield as a wedding dowry. In the years that followed, Sir Bertram built the first manor house for his family on the site upon which Beamish Hall now stands. Five generations of Montboucher lived at Beamish Manor before the final family member died in 1400. Throughout the Middle Ages, the estate was owned by various local aristocrats, including the famous Northumbrian Percy family. In 1569 the manor at Beamish was forfeited to the Crown, due to the involvement of Thomas Percy, 7th Earl of Northumberland, in the Rising of the North. After the rebellion failed, Thomas fled to Scotland, but he was captured by the Earl of Morton, one of the leading Scottish nobles. He was held prisoner for three years, before being handed over to Queen Elizabeth I in exchange for £2,000. On the 22nd of August 1572, he was beheaded at York in a public execution. The oldest part of the present Beamish Hall dates from 1620, when a new manor house was built by the Ray family. In 1682, Timothy Davison, the Governor of the Merchants' Company of Newcastle, bought the estate. 
His son William Davison lived at the hall with his second wife Dulcie Bella. Mary, their youngest daughter, married Sir Robert Eden, 3rd Baronet of Windleston Hall, in 1739. In the mid-18th century, the Edens built the present three-storey hall to replace the manor. In 1803, Catherine Eden married Robert Eden Duncombe Shafto of Whitworth Hall. In 1904, their grandson, Reverend Slingsby Duncombe Shafto, inherited the estate and took Eden as an additional surname. He was succeeded by Robert Shafto, but when he died in 1949, death duties of £120,000 left his heir, also called Robert, no choice but to sell the estate. He moved to the original family home at Bavenden Hall. The National Coal Board leased Beamish Hall in 1954 and used it as a regional head office. In 1966, Durham County Council bought the hall and sublet part of the building to Beamish Museum to house paperwork. Another section of the hall was used as a residential music college. The hall stood empty for a number of years until August 2000, at which point it was refurbished and opened as Beamish Hall Country House Hotel. The best known of the Shafto family to have held the estate at Beamish was Bonnie Bobby Shafto. Bobby's main residence was Whitworth Hall, but he did spend time here at Beamish. It was at Beamish Hall in the late 1770s that he met and fell in love with Bridget Bellasine of Bransbeth. They made a handsome couple, and it was not long before there was talk of a wedding. However, Bobby had always wanted to travel, so an agreement was made. Bobby would have his great adventure upon the high seas, experiencing exotic lands, but he would return home to his beloved Bridget, and they would be wed and begin a family. On the day that he sailed out of the River Weir, Bridget struggled to hold back the tears as she waved him off. He waved back at her as the ship slowly headed out to sea. They continued to wave until they could no longer see one another. It has been said, although there's no historical proof, that Bridget actually wrote the popular northern rhyme that has ensured that Bobby Shafto remains a household name in the region. It goes, Bobby Shafto's gone to sea, silver buckles at his knee. He'll come back and marry me, Bonnie Bobby Shafto. Bobby Shafto's bright and fair, combing down his yellow hair. He's my ain forever mare, Bonnie Bobby Shafto. Bobby Shafto's tall and slim, he always dresses so neat and trim. The lassies, they all kick at him, Bonnie Bobby Shafto. Bobby Shafto's getting a bairn, for him to dandle on his arm. On his arm and on his knee, Bobby Shafto loves me. Bobby did return to the northeast, but Bridget was never to see him again. He met another woman, Anne Duncombe, and he asked for her hand in marriage. Word reached Bridget, and she was devastated. She had to speak to Bobby and hear this for herself. She loved him with all of her heart, and was prepared to do whatever it took to win him back. She went to Beamish Hall late one evening in the hope that he would be there, and managed to gain access to the back of the hall. As she made her way through the winding corridors, she was spotted by a servant. She panicked and ran down to the lower reaches of the hall. She was worried the servant would follow her, so climbed inside a casket. Unfortunately, when she closed the lid, the latch fell down and she became trapped. She cried out for help, but she was in an area of the hall that few people ever ventured. Bridget died within that casket, although no one knows if it was suffocation thirst or hunger that took her life. 
Bobby Shafter and Anne Duncombe were married on the 18th of April 1774. Bobby had heard rumours that Bridget had disappeared, but he would never know the truth. Bobby died in 1797, and it wasn't until the early 19th century, almost 30 years after she died in such horrendous circumstances, that Bridget's mummified remains were found inside the casket by a terrified cleaner. Ironically, the only other item within the casket was an old wedding dress. Bridget's spirit haunts Beamish Hall to this very day. She is known as the Grey Lady and is seen and heard in the lower reaches of the hall where she lost her life. She has also been looking forlornly out of the window of the bridal suite. The Grey Lady is the best known of all of Beamish Hall's ghosts, but she is by no means the only spectre to walk the old hall. Staff members will openly admit that there's some rooms within the hall that don't feel right, and they are reluctant to go into alone, especially after dark. The Shafto Hall is one room in particular that has brought blind terror racing to the fore. Members of staff have been alone in the room when they've heard footsteps behind them. When they've turned around, the room has been empty, and the footsteps immediately stop. An old lady dressed in Edwardian dress and a pink hat sits in the Eden bar, and in the Eden room, a man wearing Victorian finery stares out of the window. In the reception area, a woman has been seen. It's believed that she's named Charlotte. In the attic room, the light fittings have been seen to spin around. This is attributed to the ghost of two young children who are set to play there. Visitors to Beamish Hall in search of the many ghosts that haunt the estate would find a visit to nearby Beamishburn time well spent. There is a legend dating back to the 17th century of a young lady in her late teens who grew up in the area. Most versions of the legend say she was called Mary, although others say Marie. She was a well-mannered young lady, very family-orientated and who wanted to remain pure until the day she found the man of her dreams and was married. She was very beautiful, petite, with long red hair, and many of the men in the village tried to woo her, but she politely rejected their advances. One night, three men were drinking in a local public house when the topic turned to Mary. All of the men had tried to charm her unsuccessfully, and as the drink flowed, and they continued to consume great quantities of ale, they all decided to go and pay Mary a visit, to ask her to reconsider turning down their advances. When they arrived at Mary's home late that evening, she answered the door in her nightgown, and they found her to be home alone, as her parents were away and would not return until the following day. They asked if they could come in. She was afraid and said no. They ignored her reply and pushed her aside. Mary was beginning to panic and asked them again to leave. They laughed and asked her what she would do if they didn't. They pushed her into a chair and she began to scream out for help. Nobody came. That night, all three men raped Mary. As Mary lay upon her bed, crying her heart out in the torn and bloodied remains of her nightgown, The men began to sober up, and panic set in, as they realised that Mary knew all three of them. And all she had to do was tell one person, and they would be arrested, and likely executed. They decided they had to take action. Two of the men held her down on her bed as she struggled. The third man approached her with a razor-sharp knife in his hand. When she saw it, she screamed out for help in absolute terror. It would be the last noise she would ever make as the man grabbed her tongue and cut it from her mouth. 
She was trying to scream out in horror and agony, but no sound came forth, as she choked on the blood gushing from the wounds. The men knew they still had a problem. She could write down their names, and they'd be identified as her rapists. Two of the men pinned her to the floor, as the third beat her hands with a mallet, breaking and splintering every bone, until her hands were nothing more than pulp. In one final callous act, they cut out both of her eyes. This would ensure she was never able to see them again. With this, they knew no one would ever know of the evil things that took place that very night, and they made a hasty exit. Mary was all alone, and absolutely beside herself with a mixture of all of the worst emotions. Terrible pain, shame and fear. She was now blind, unable to speak, and she'd likely never be able to use her hands again. Her parents came home the next day and were horrified to find what had been done to their daughter. She was very ill and drifting in and out of consciousness. Over the weeks and months that followed, they cared for her and nursed her back to as near full health as she was ever likely to be. Mary loved her parents dearly, but no one would ever be brought to justice for the horror she endured, and she felt that her life was no longer worth living. Using one of the few senses that she still possessed, her hearing, she made her way down to the fast-flowing water at Beamishburn and threw herself in. Her cold, limp, lifeless body was found the next day. After dark, visitors to the bridge on the public footpath that crosses over Beamishburn have reported seeing the ghost of a young lady with long, flowing red hair, floating just above the water. She holds her arms out towards them, as if to show what was done to her hands. Other visitors have claimed to hear a woman's blood-curdling scream. Some witnesses have said that it appears to be coming from beneath the water's surface. The Oak Tree Inn The Little family descends from Thomas Little, a wealthy merchant of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and loyal supporter of Charles I. In 1642, Charles I granted him the title of Baronet of Ravensworth Castle, which was to become the family seat. In 1690, Tantoby Manor was built in Stanley, nearby for the lesser members of the Little family, and it was the first building in the village of Tantoby which developed around the manor. In the mid-1800s, the manor, which had been left empty for decades, was opened as the Oak Tree Inn, offering accommodation to travellers passing through, and a gathering place for the locals to enjoy a drink or a meal. Today, the Oak Tree Inn retains much of the original Victorian decor, and also features an open fire. The staff owners and customers may have changed as the decades have passed, but one thing has remained constant, the Oak Tree Inn's resident ghosts. The most regularly reported spirit is that of a man who sits silently on a corner seat, appearing to enjoy a drink near the open fire. He appears solid, and most witnesses could have easily mistaken him for a regular customer, except for his clothing, which is 18th century in appearance, and includes a tricorn hat. The identity of the spirit is unknown, but he has been seen hundreds of times throughout the history of the inn. He has also been held responsible for the audible phenomena experienced regularly in the inn. From the radio and the bar being turned up and down, to footsteps that are heard coming from the room directly above the bar. On one such occasion in the 1970s, the owners heard the footsteps and were convinced that somebody was upstairs. 
so gathered together several of the men who were drinking in the bar and asked them to accompany her upstairs to confront the intruder. However, there was no one there, and all of the windows and doors were locked. As they wondered where this intruder could have gone, they heard the footsteps again. This time they were louder, and they were coming from the very room in which they stood. All of the group were stood perfectly still, but the footsteps could clearly be heard walking from one side of the room to the other, before stopping as suddenly as they had begun. The same spirit has been blamed for playing practical jokes on men visiting the toilet. Male members of staff and customers have found themselves unable to open the outer toilet door, pulling it as hard as they possibly can but unable to budge it. Then after being trapped for a few minutes, it suddenly opens to reveal that no other member of staff or customer could have been holding the other side of the door. This was first reported in the winter of 1995, but has occurred regularly in the years that have followed. The Oak Tree Inn's other resident ghost is that of a small black cat. It has been seen and heard regularly. A number of customers over the years have apologised to the bar staff for letting the cat out when they came in. There have even been complaints from customers that cats should not be allowed in the inn after they've seen the spectral cat run behind the bar or into the kitchen. Lumley Castle Lumley Castle was the creation of the man from where it took its name, Sir Ralph Lumley. Sir Ralph was well known throughout the north. A brave soldier knighted in 1385 and in 1388 he helped to defend Berwick up on Tweed from the Scots. Later that year he led the attack at the Battle of Otterburn and despite fighting courageously he was captured and imprisoned in Scotland. Due to the uncertain times he sought permission from the Bishop of Durham to turn his manor house into a castle. This was approved and work began immediately. Nine years later in 1398 Sir Ralph's castle was completed. In January 1400 Sir Ralph and his son Thomas partook in a conspiracy to kill King Henry IV and replace him with Richard II. The plan was to attack the new king during a tournament at Windsor Castle. However Edward, Earl of Rutland, betrayed the plot and the king and his family escaped to London and the rebels were all arrested. Sir Ralph and his son were stripped of their titles and beheaded. The lands belonging to Sir Ralph were forfeited to the Earl of Somerset until his death in 1421. The Earl had no son to inherit his estates, so Lumley Castle and its land reverted to the Lumley family, and specifically Sir Ralph's grandson Thomas. The castle is still owned by the Lumley family, but in 1976 tenancy was granted to the company No Ordinary Hotels, and it was turned into the 59-bedroom, five-star hotel it is today. The castle is full of dark corridors and has a medieval atmosphere enhanced by the rooms being made up in period style and the staff wearing period costume. Lumley Castle is famous the world over for its resident ghost, Lily of Lumley, Sir Ralph's wife. The couple were Lollards, followers of John Wycliffe's preaching of a New Testament gospel. When Sir Ralph was away in Berwick-upon-Tweed, Two priests visited Lady Lumley and tried her bring her back to the Catholic fold. She was strong-willed and politely thanked the priests for their visit and explained that she had no intent in returning to Catholicism. The priests were concerned for her soul, so lured her into a bedroom where they murdered her and carried her body to the basement 
and then they threw her lifeless corpse down into the well. To cover their back, the priests found a very ill local woman, and they took her to a convent near Fingal Priory, saying that she was indeed Lady Lumley. The woman died shortly afterwards, and when Sir Ralph returned from Berwick, he was informed by the two priests that his wife had left to become a nun, and she died shortly afterwards. This is where the truth between the legend has become muddled over the centuries. Some incarnations of the story tell that Sir Ralph believed the priests, and they got away with the murder of his wife. However, other versions of the legend claim that Sir Ralph was furious with the priests for taking his wife away from the castle, and he had them executed. It's possible that the latter is what actually occurred, as this would account for the sightings of ghostly monks walking in single file throughout the castle grounds. The well, where Lily of Lumley's body still remains to this day, is now covered by a pane of glass, but guests can still look down it. It's said that every night, her ghost comes up from the well and walks throughout the castle. Her footsteps are heard on landings and even in rooms. Lumley Castle made news headlines worldwide in June 2005, when the Australian cricket team spent a terrifying night at the hotel. All-rounder Shane Watson was so scared that he slept on the floor of his teammate's room. Australian media officer Belinda Deninit admitted to journalists that several of the players were uneasy in the hotel. She went on to tell reporters that she actually saw ghosts for herself. I was awoken at 4am by my phone and noticed that the blind in my window had opened. I looked out of the window and saw a procession of white people walking past. I was amazed. It was amazing, very scary. I pulled the blind back down and returned to bed. The blind suddenly opened and when I looked over there was somebody looking in through the window. This was not the first instance of a cricket team being frightened by the hotel's resident spirits. In the year 2000, three of the West Indies touring team that were staying at the hotel, including Captain Jimmy Adams, were so scared that they checked out in the middle of the night. Haunting Breaks have organised a number of paranormal investigations at Lumley Castle. In 2009, I spoke to the company's director at the time, Carol Bowen, and she told me about what had occurred during a memorable investigation in January 2006. She said, Amazingly, a full spectral apparition of a little girl was seen. She was walking along the corridor and heading towards the staircase. She appeared to be about five or six years old, and she was dressed in 19th century costume. In room 63, one guest reported hearing noises. They took a photograph, and in the following morning, they found the picture was covered with orbs, so much so it appeared as if it was snowing in the room. During dinner, a couple of the guests commented on headaches and strange feelings. Two of them had to retire to the bar area, and fairly quickly started to feel better. Later in the dining room, we conducted a vigil, and we experienced strange movements and lights. One of the guests, who had previously been a complete sceptic, was astounded to experience what he believed to be a voice whisper in his ear. We asked for a noise to confirm communication, and another guest said at that moment she saw a shadow move towards a particular chair. We immediately took a photograph of the chair, and a shadow was captured in the middle of the seat. The surrounding area is also a haven for paranormal activity. There is a tale of a headless horseman that rides from Lumley Castle to Finkel Priory. 
The identity of this headless phantom is unknown, but he has been reported a number of times, most commonly on dark stormy nights. Sounds of a battle have been heard in the castle grounds and nearby woodland. The sound of sword clashing with sword, horses charging, and the cries of dying men. One of the best known ghost stories in County Durham occurred at Lumley Mill, which has long since been destroyed, and tells of the murder of Anne Walker. The year was 1630, and John Graham was working hard one night at Lumley Mill. Suddenly, he noticed a chill in the air, and he felt like he was no longer alone. He turned around, and came face to face with a young lady in her late teens or early twenties. Her long dress was soaked in blood, and she was bleeding badly from five large head wounds. John had the horrific realisation that there was no way anyone could survive such injuries, and, resisting the urge to flee, he plucked up the courage to ask what she wanted of him. She told him that she'd been betrayed by his neighbour, her uncle, John Walker. She continued to explain that she had been asked by Walker to go with a collier, called Mark Sharp, who would look after her. However, he had taken her out into the moorland, and when her back was turned, he had killed her with a pickaxe. He concealed the murder weapon under a bank, and threw her body down a mine. He struggled to get the blood from her clothes, so he hid those also. The ghost begged of the miller to tell the authorities of her crime. If she didn't, she would haunt him forever. John Graham ran home as fast as he could, but he could not sleep. His heart was still racing, and he was trying to rationalise his experience. He decided that he must have imagined the whole thing, and he put it down to just working too hard. A few weeks passed by uneventfully, but one night Graham was coming home through the woods, when he came across the ghost of Anne Walker once more. This time she was much more forceful, but Graham fled, and again did not report the crime. Months passed, but these occurrences had adversely affected the miller, There were fears for his health, and he was no longer the cheerful man he had previously been. Onlookers commented that he seemed to have the weight of the world on his shoulders. Just before Christmas that year, Graham was in his garden when Anne Walker appeared to him again. This time, the demands were even more threatening. Graham could no longer pretend that this was nothing more than his imagination, and he agreed to report the murder to the authorities. The next day he went to the local magistrates and after telling the full story, an immediate search of the pit was ordered. The decomposing body of Anne Walker was found and recovered from the pit. The pickaxe was found under the bank just as Anne had said, together with the blood-stained clothing. John Walker and Mark Sharp were subsequently arrested and charged with the murder of Anne Walker. Speculation was rife amongst the villagers as Walker was known to have abused his wife prior to her death, and his niece had become pregnant shortly after moving in with her uncle. She was asked, but would not say who was the father. Now it appeared that John Walker's motive for the killing of his niece was to hide the fact that she was indeed pregnant by him. The trial of John Walker and Mark Sharp took place on August 1631 at the Assizes Court in Durham Palace Green. Both men pleaded not guilty, The trial was ruled over by Judge Davenport, and one witness, a Mr Fairhair, swore under oath that he had seen the likeness of a child on John Walker's shoulders. As soon as the judge found the prisoners to be guilty, 
Judge Davenport immediately passed the sentence of death on both men. John Walker and Mark Sharp were hanged, but pleaded their innocence until their dying breath. Finkel Priory The first building on the site of Finkel Priory was a hermitage created by Godric, dedicated to John the Baptist in the early 12th century. He chose a scenic spot on the banks of the River Weir, which was to become his home for almost 60 years. He had not always been a man of God, he was born in Walpole in Norfolk, and grew up to become a peddler and a sailor. After many years at sea, Godric visited Lindisfarne. This visit changed his life forever, and he dedicated the remainder of his life to Christianity. He went on a number of pilgrimages around the Mediterranean and to Jerusalem, before returning to England, where he saw permission from Ranulf Flambard, the Bishop of Durham, to allow him to build a hermitage of Fingal. Godric lived a simple lonely existence, choosing to live and sleep outside regardless of the weather. In 1160, Godric became very ill, and he was confined to bed, where he was cared for by the monks of Durham until his death a decade later on the 21st of May 1170, at the age of 105. He was initially interred in Durham, but his remains were later moved to the stone chapel of St John the Baptist at Fingal, built towards the end of Godric's life. In death, Godric became a popular medieval saint, although he was never formally canonised. He was best remembered for his kindness to animals. He would do anything to help and protect the fauna that lived near his simple home. One tale recalls of a time that he hid a stag from hunters that had chased it through the forest. In 1196, Godric's simple hermitage at Fingal became a Benedictine priory dependent on Durham Cathedral. Two monks of Durham moved to Fingal, where they found a small church, a dam and a mill. Work began in the latter half of the 13th century to build a bigger church, and the site remained under construction for over 300 years. Fingal had no more than four monks in residence at any one time, although it was not uncommon for monks to travel from Durham Cathedral to stay at Fingal. Fingal remained a priory until 1535, and the dissolution of the lesser monasteries. Fragments of the church today date back to the 12th century, built towards the end of Godric's life, while other remains date from the mid-14th century. Some of the temporary buildings built in the late 12th century for the first prior of Finkel remain. There are some well-preserved, heavily decorated capitals on the arcade columns, and beautiful tracery in the filled-in nave arches of the church. Finkel Priory is one of the few places in the world where time slips have been reported on a number of occurrences. This is a very rare, extremely frightening paranormal occurrence, where witnesses are taken back in time and given a glimpse of their current location in a bygone age. This is said to occur on the bridge next to Finkel Priory that crosses the River Weir, and individuals have claimed to have seen Finkel Priory no longer ruined but how it would have appeared when it was in use as a priory. With monks wandering between the buildings, witnesses have described sensations such as sounds appearing muffled, colours appearing muted, and a feeling of depression. There is also the legend of a club-footed ghost called Slewfoot, who has been seen throughout the ruined priory. Langley Hall 
Langley Hall is a ruined fortified manor house, built by Lord Henry Scrope during the reign of King Henry VIII. The land at Langley, which took its name from Longley, meaning a long clearing in woodland, had passed into the hands of the Scrope family in the 14th century, and had previously belonged to the Percys, a powerful Northumberland family. The hall was built in 1533, complete with a moat, and standing on a hillside with a glorious view over the Vale of the Brownie, it would have been a magnificent home for Lord Henry and his family. The Scropes occupied Langley Hall until 1630, when Emmanuel Scrope, 1st Earl of Sunderland, passed away on the 30th of May. Despite having four children with his wife Elizabeth, they had all died at a young age, bringing the direct family line to an end. In late 1630, the estate at Langley became the property of the Marquess of Winchester, whose family it remained in until the middle of the 18th century when it was bought by the Lamptons. The Lamptons found Langley Hall to have fallen into ruin, a shadow of the majestic manor that it had been only 200 years prior. Walls had crumbled, and part of the building was being used as a farm. Langley Hall was never rebuilt, and the decay continued throughout the 19th and 20th century. Langley Hall was once a place of happiness, with the sounds of laughter and music regularly heard across the Brownie Valley. But this is in stark contrast to the hollow shell that stands today in a thick wooded plantation. The overgrown ruin of Langley Hall is of two large stone buildings with traces of a third. The doorways and carved windows that remain are typically 16th century in design. The moat is preserved to the north of the ruins and in the northwest corner it still holds water. The walls are of varying height up to a maximum of 8 metres, and are between 1 and 1.5 metres thick. There have been a number of unusual occurrences at the remains of the hall, one of which is the ruin appearing to be consumed by fire. These reports have all been very similar. The witness has seen Langley Hall ablaze, and has been able to smell the smoke, with soldiers running around the base of the hall, when the hall is approached, the vision fades. The best known legend associated with Langley Hall dates back to the middle of the 18th century. When dark descends over the hall, a coach has been seen on the rough approach to the entrance. The coach carries a coffin and is drawn by four headless horsemen and driven by a headless driver. It proceeds rapidly, but makes no sound. The legend states that if the headless driver is seen, then the death of the witness, or someone dear to them, is sure to follow soon after. The origins of this legend is not known, but it has been claimed, although there's no historical evidence, that a marsh was drained near Langley in 1826, and a well-preserved carriage was uncovered, along with the skeletons of four horses, each of them missing their skull. There is a carving on one of the remaining walls at Langley Hall, known as the drummer's hand. Locals believe that this carving is cursed and is the cause of the continued decay of the once grand hall. Crook Hall Crook Hall is a medieval manor house originally built in 1286 on land belonging to Sidgate Manor. History records that the land had previously been owned by Gilbert de Aix who granted it to Amory, the son of the then Archdeacon of Durham, in 1217. In the early 14th century, the manor became the property of Peter de Croke, 
which is how the hall got the name that it still uses to this day. The old name of Croke Hall is shown on maps of Durham as late as 1749. By 1415 the hall was owned by Thomas Billingham and it remained in the Billingham family until they sold it to the Mickletons in 1657. The Mickletons carried out extensive restoration work in 1671. In 1721 James Mickleton, the grandson of Christopher Mickleton who bought the hall into the family, died and he directed in his will that Crook Hall should be sold to pay his debts. Further improvements to Crook Hall were carried out by subsequent owners over the years and the result is a beautiful grade one listed manor house which stands today as a rare example of three eras of English architecture. The medieval hall from the original building, the Jacobean improvements carried out by the Mickledons and a Georgian house built by the Hopper family in the 18th century. Crook Hall's gardens attract visitors from all over the UK and have been described by Alan Titchmarsh as a tapestry of colourful blooms. Despite the grandeur of the building, there is an air of mystery surrounding Crook Hall. From rumours of secret passageways lost during the centuries of rebuilding and restructuring, to one of Durham's best known ghosts, the White Lady of Crook Hall. The identity of the White Lady is unknown, but a previous owner of Crook Hall, Mary Horgood, is convinced the spirit is that of the niece of Cuthbert Billingham. She is seen to glide down a disused wooden staircase in the oldest part of the hall. The stairs coming to an abrupt stop. Her presence is also felt in the Jacobean room. Maggie Bell, who owned the hall with her husband Keith from 1995 until it was taken over by the National Trust in March of 2022, took the time to tell me of Crook Hall's ghosts. Crook Hall's best known ghost is the White Lady. We own a letter written many years ago, although it's not dated, which tells of a grand ball in the medieval hall with a huge feast. As preparations for the ball were being completed and the table laid out, the room was left empty for a short period of time. Suddenly there was a loud crashing coming from the room. Everything had been thrown around and broken. The letter tells that this was the work of the White Lady. Most people know the White Lady, but Crook Hall actually has a second ghost. The spirit of a murdered soldier who was bricked up alive in a wall in the northeast corner of the hall. We don't believe in ghosts, but having lived at Crook Hall for as long as we have, we've experienced so many unusual happenings, too many to recall, that it does make you wonder. The most unusual experience that I can think of happened five or six years ago, when we used to sleep in a bedroom in the Jacobean part of the hall. I was asleep, but Keith couldn't sleep. In the early hours he became aware of a dragon sound in the minstrel's gallery, which seemed to be coming from around the corner and then stopped outside of our bedroom door. Keith was convinced it was a burglar, but just as he expected the bedroom door to be burst open by the intruder, he heard the sounds of footsteps going upstairs, on a staircase which no longer exists. As the footsteps reached the top of the stairs, he was terrified to clearly hear the sound of footsteps on creaky floorboards in the disused attic above us. The room, which has since been restored, was at the time completely inaccessible. One of the walls had been completely removed, the window had been bricked up, and all of the floorboards had been taken up. The floor, which he could hear footsteps on, didn't exist. 
Krukol has always been a place that has generated fear amongst the locals. I was told that there used to be a pit behind the hall called Cathol Pit. I'm not sure if that was its actual name or just something that it was known by. But the children who worked down the pit lived in fear of Crook Hall. After finishing their long hours in the pit, they refused to walk home past Crook Hall, so their mother would have to come and collect them. Jimmy Allen's Jimmy Allen's is a popular nightclub in the heart of Durham City along the Weir. It is built into the remains of an old prison beneath Elvet Bridge and it is from this prison's most famous inmate that the nightclub takes its name. Jimmy Allen was born in 1733 and was an adopted member of the Fars, a famous clan of gypsies that lived in the Cheviot Hills. Jimmy was taught the Northumbrian pipes by his adopted family and he was a natural, quickly becoming a very talented player. He became the official piper to the Duchess of Northumberland, a position he held for two years. Jimmy, however, had his vices. He drank too much, he gambled, and he had an eye for the ladies. Jimmy began to steal from the women that he romanced, and then he progressed to cattle rustling. Jimmy enlisted in the British Army, only to desert shortly afterwards. He was caught and imprisoned. Jimmy escaped and ran off to Edinburgh, where he was tracked down and locked up again. Jimmy successfully escaped for a second time, this time making his way to Dublin, from where it is believed he made his way abroad, as far as India, making a living from his extraordinary skills as a piper. In 1803, Jimmy was arrested for a third and final time at Jedburgh, for stealing a horse in Gateshead. He was taken to Durham, and he was tried and sentenced to death. But for reasons unknown, this was reduced to life imprisonment. He spent seven years in a cell at the House of Correction beneath Elvet Bridge, with only rats and his pipes for company. In 1810, Jimmy was found dead aged 77. Ironically, a pardon had been issued by the Prince Regent, but it arrived three days after he passed away. Jimmy's ghost is believed to remain in the cell to this day, and if you listen carefully, you can still hear his pipes. The cells at the House of Correction were mainly used to hold men and women condemned to death, which they were then taken away at the local market square and hanged. It is believed that Jimmy is not the only tormented soul to remain in the nightclub which bears his name. Shadowy figures have been seen on a regular basis throughout the building, and people have reported hearing whispering, described as the sound of a female voice in their rear. Vane Tempest Hall The Grade 2 listed Vane Tempest Hall, now a community centre of the Gilesgate Community and Welfare Association, is located in Gilesgate in Durham. It was originally built in 1863 as a militia headquarters and barracks, known as Giles Gates Militia Barracks. Between 1884 and 1890, the building was used as the smallpox isolation hospital for Durham, a particularly nasty disease which claimed many, many lives. The initial symptoms for those unfortunate enough to catch smallpox would be a fever and severe vomiting. This was followed by ulcers forming in the mouth, and a skin rash all over the body. Over a number of days the rash would get worse, and become fluid-filled blisters. The blisters then scabbed over and fell off, leaving scars. The disease was highly contagious. For those who caught smallpox, the mortality rate was around 30%, but much higher rates in babies and young children. 
even those who did survive would be left with scarring from the horrendous skin rash they will have suffered, and many were left blind. The earliest evidence of the disease dates to around 1500 BC as it's been found in Egyptian mummies. Smallpox is estimated to have killed up to 300 million people in the 20th century and around 500 million people in the last 100 years of its existence. As recently as 1967, there was 15 million cases of smallpox every year. The last naturally occurring case of smallpox was diagnosed in October 1977 and in 1980, the World Health Organization certified the global eradication of the disease. Many of those infected with smallpox here at the Vane Tempest Hall would have died, forced to be apart from their loved ones due to being contagious, slipping away into death, all alone. By May 1916, it was being used by the 4th Durham Scout Group. In the late 1940s, the Gilesgate Community and Welfare Association was formed and based in the hall. Today the building is used as a community centre, and it is also hugely popular as a paranormal investigation venue. There are unsubstantiated claims that it was built on the site of a mass grave, but it appears this may be a fact, which has been invented in more recent years to make it an even more attractive proposition for would-be ghost hunters. The amount of reported paranormal activity here over the last decade or so has attracted paranormal investigators on a regular basis, and it's been claimed that one group had a night here so frightening that they all swore they would never return to the Vane Tempest Hall. As well as the strange sounds of dragon coming from the mortuary, people have witnessed the full-bodied apparition of a disfigured soldier that supposedly killed himself while loading a cannon, and he didn't realise that the fuse was already lit. The cannonball blew his head clean off. A lady in white is said to haunt the grounds of the hall. She is said to be a sad figure. She is completely silent, but those who witnessed her have become overwhelmed by sadness, as if tapping into the emotions of this unknown lady. People have also reported howling, disembodied voices, unexplainable bangs, doors opening and closing all on their own, often on command, sudden temperature drops, murmuring, whispering, and even the sound of a woman singing. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to our ghost trail of County Durham. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com Feedback, location suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. This episode's coming soon. If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start for as little as £1. If you'd like to get early access to episodes, as well as access to exclusive episodes where you'll join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened, you can gain access right now for less than the price of a pint. There's eight episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. There's also a tier where not only do you get all of that, but you can get your hands on some exclusive How Haunted merch. 
as well as joining me on an actual paranormal investigation via live stream and talk to me throughout. Perhaps together we'll see a ghost. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod to find out more. If you aren't a fan of Patreon or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation at the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee? You can do so by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast episode description and over on the website. I'm running a competition where two winners can get a signed copy of one of my new books. There is a copy of Illustrated Tales of Northumberland, which was released in February, and a copy of Paranormal Northumberland, which was released in May, up for grabs. In July, I will be walking 28 miles to raise money for Cancer Research UK, in memory of my dear friend John, who lost his battle in 2017, aged only 34. To enter the competition, as well as supporting the charity, if you can afford to do so, please consider heading over to justgiven.com forward slash page, P-A-G-E, forward slash walk, four, that's the number four, John, 2023. That's justgiven.com forward slash page, forward slash walk for John, 2023. The link is in this podcast episode description. And sponsor me whatever you can afford. Then just drop me an email at rob at how-haunted.com and I'll pop your name in the hat. At the end of July I'll do a draw and I'll ship them to the two lucky winners anywhere in the world. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time, we continue our journey through Haunted County Durham, and we look at locations which include a castle, where students share their home with many ghosts, including that of an 18th century lady who fell down the staircase breaking her neck, a 16th century manor house, which is home to a tall woman who searches endlessly for her child who was kidnapped and never found, and a violent entity who grabbed a young boy around the neck as he slept. He told his mother who comforted him assuring him it was nothing more than a bad dream. Then she saw the impression of fingers on his throat. We'll also look at a hall, which is haunted by a parson who was pickled in brine by his wife following his death, so she could continue to receive his income. But what else lies in store for us next time out? Let's find out together next week, when we continue our ghost trail of County Durham. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time when we will once again ask the question How haunted? <laughs> <laughs>